What up, what up, what up everyone? Welcome to episode 130, that's right, episode 130 of Combo's Court, and I am Combo. Go leave a five-star rating and a friendly comment right on your Apple Podcast app, rate and review wherever you listen to Combo's Court, the continued support, nothing short of amazing. Appreciate all of the Combo's Court listeners across the globe. You guys are the best. Today's show, Alan Stein Jr. joins in. Alan is a keynote speaker, published author, and has 15 plus years of experience as a basketball performance coach. Alan has worked with players such as Kevin Durant, Victor Olandipo, and many, many others. Had a great conversation with Alan. Glad you guys will be able to listen in. Follow Alan on Instagram at Alan Stein Jr. That's A-L-A-N-S-T-E-I-N. J-R, you know you could follow me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Luca on the track. Jr. is a world-renowned coach, speaker, author. He also has an extensive background as a basketball performance coach, has worked with Kobe Bryant, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. Uh, Alan, welcome to Combo Score, man. How are you feeling? Hey, I'm feeling great. It's nice to connect with you. It's great to have you. Obviously, now you, you've shifted to speaking on the corporate level, but can you walk us through your hoop journey? Yeah, I'd be happy to, you know, because it's, it's really important uh, to provide the context to what I'm doing now. Uh, in a couple weeks of the time of this recording, I'll actually turn 44, uh, which marks about the four-decade mark since I, I fell in love with the game of basketball. Uh, I remember falling in love with the game at four or five years old and it really being my first identifiable passion. I mean, it was really the first thing that, that totally consumed and occupied my, my mental space. And, and I've been in love with the game ever since. And I'm very grateful that here 40 years later, it's still a staple in my life. And I guess to kind of connect those two endpoints. Um, I was a pretty good high school player, uh, was able to play in college at Elon University down in North Carolina. Uh, while I was at Elon, I started to develop an equal love and affinity for the performance training side um, and decided that was what I wanted to do and spent almost 20 years as a basketball specific performance coach working mostly at the high school level, uh, but that afforded me some opportunities uh, to work some events and, and meet some of the guys that are in the NBA now. And then about three years ago, was just ready for a new challenge and to take on something different and wanted to take all of the lessons that I had learned from the game and all of the amazing coaches and players that had poured into me and mentored me. And I wanted to show folks how they could apply those same principles and lessons and strategies to the business world uh, and to their lives in general. Do you miss being in the basketball bubble? I know you're still involved with the game, just the grind, the, you know, just the everyday basketball aspect of things. At times I do. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, and anytime I go back and visit coach Jones over to Matha or get to go watch a, a college or an NBA practice, a part of me does miss it, but um, I absolutely love what I'm doing now. You know, uh, having spent 20 years in that space, there are very few things that I didn't get a chance to see or do. Uh, so I'm so grateful for that. 
but I do, I love what I'm doing now. And, and I've learned as I've gotten older that you simply can't say yes to everything that, right. that in order for me to have these opportunities now and to be on corporate stages, I had to say no to doing some of those basketball things. And, and certainly at the moment, I'm okay with that trade, but I miss the players and the coaches. I miss the relationships. You know, I've, I've always, I mean, above and beyond just basketball, I've always been so appreciative of the coaching fraternity and being around coaches. You know, I, I find that coaches at any level are, are servant leaders to their core, you know, and they do it for very altruistic reasons. They love the game and they love helping young people. And I love surrounding myself with that type of person. So yeah, there'll always be portions of me that will miss it, but I, I keep a very open mind and, you know, I have uh, twin sons that will be turning 10 in March and I have a daughter that will be turning eight in June. And while I don't think I'm going to coach them per se, I'd rather just be their dad as they get older. I would, I can see myself getting back involved in some areas of coaching um, you know, maybe even helping a coach that will coach them or, you know, if they want me to help them and do some things kind of in the backyard at the hoop, uh, I, I would love to have those bonding experiences. So while my focus is on the corporate world, I haven't and will never actually leave the game. You mentioned uh, that you can't say yes to everything. Is that a form of minimalism? Uh, in one way, shape or form, I think it is. I mean, really, uh, I think it's just, it's a reality. You know, I, I found as I've gotten older, that you can really simplify life by asking yourself a series of binary questions. And anytime someone asks me for something that will require my time, uh, which is the most precious resource that any of us have, I have to ask myself is saying yes to this. What am I saying no to? You know, I mean, I I'm so thankful to connect with you and I'm, I'm glad we're able to arrange this, but I have to acknowledge that saying yes to you for 30 minutes means I'm saying no to something else for those 30 minutes. And I want to make sure I feel good about that trade. Now, clearly in this case, I do, which is why I'm on your show. And I'm so thankful to connect with you for 30 minutes. Um, but that's really important. So I, I think, you know, anytime I say yes to a speaking engagement that makes me travel, I'm saying no to being at home and being with my kids. And there are times where going on the speaking engagement is the right thing to do. And I should say yes. And then other times, maybe not so much, but um, I hold myself fully accountable and responsible for all of those decisions. But I find that decision-making becomes easier when you can look at it through that yes, no binary filter. Well, I'm thankful for having you here for 30 minutes. I wanted to shift to basketball. Uh, you started working with KD really young. What did you learn early about KD and what separates the elite level athlete from everybody else? I'm really fortunate. So there were there are two different high schools I had an opportunity to, to be on, on staff with. Uh, the first was Montrose Christian, seven years there. Okay. Uh, and, and I worked for a coach named Stu Vetter, who at the time was, you know, 30, 35 years older than I was, which means we kind of had almost a, a, just by sheer age, kind of a father-son dynamic. And then I decided to leave and go to DeMatha, uh, led by Coach Mike Jones, who's only one or two years older than me. So we had more of a peer or a, a brother relationship. And okay. it was really neat to have both dynamics, to learn uh, from both situations, because both are Hall of Fame level coaches uh, who've produced numerous NBA players and won numerous championships. Um, and yeah, KD was probably the most recognized player that I've worked with and arguably the best player ever to come out of Montrose Christian. Uh, but there were six or seven other guys that are currently in the NBA that played at Montrose at that time, you know, Justin Anderson and Terrence Ross. And, uh, right. you know, so there's some really good players at both of those schools. Uh, but yeah, I had a chance to meet KD when he was really young and, 
you know, KD certainly had all of the raw materials at that time to be an elite level player. I mean, he had great footwork. He had great shooting mechanics. Uh, he was very coachable and humble. Uh, he had a very high basketball IQ. Uh, he was a gym rat and he loved the game. I mean, he had all of those raw materials. And, you know, Montrose and DeMatha has plenty of players and continue to have plenty of players uh, with those raw materials. But, you know, really when I think of what it takes to make a great player uh, and what I've seen is the common thread, uh, there's a few. Uh, one, while they're all very confident on the court, I mean, they always think their next shot is going in. They think they could beat anybody off the dribble, uh, you know, that, that anytime you leave them open, it's going to be cash. Uh, but despite that confidence, they all are very coachable. They have an appropriate amount of humility to acknowledge that as good as they are, they can still get better. And they want to be open to feedback. They want to be open to coaching. Uh, they want to be open to someone that can help get them better. So my number one goal was always to prove to any player, I have what you need. I have the knowledge and the expertise and experience to give you something that's going to allow you to raise your game, which is why I would get them to, to buy in usually pretty quickly. Uh, another thing that unites all great players and really any high performer in any area of life is that they don't get bored with the basics. Uh, they understand that in order to be great, you have to work towards mastery of the fundamentals. Now in the game like basketball, you're talking about shooting, passing, rebounding, defending, handling the ball, you know, basketball IQ. Those are the fundamentals of the game that you have to work relentlessly on. Uh, but if you're talking just about in the business world or leadership, you know, uh, listening and communication and emotional intelligence, those are the fundamentals of what it takes to be an exceptional leader. And the best leaders I've ever been around, they work on those things relentlessly. Uh, so those are two. And then I would say the, the third is just an overall respect their body, a respect for their coaches, a respect for their teammates, a respect for their school or organization. They have a respect for the game. They have a respect for the players that came before them. Uh, they just, they have a, a very high respect of everything that goes in to making them a complete player. And while I could probably list off 20 things, uh, those are the first three that came to mind. Alan, you know, a well-trained athlete, yet well-rested athlete is essential for optimal performance. I think that's common knowledge at this point. I remember when I was playing, you know, if I took the practice, it sounds it sounds bad even, but when I took the practice off before a game, I would just feel so much better for the game. It's just the way it was. What are your thoughts on load management at the NBA level? Because obviously there's a fan element to it. Oh, of course. And that's the part that makes everything so tough. I mean, without question, I would say the biggest advance that I've seen in performance training over the last 20 years is less emphasis on the training and more emphasis on the rest, recovery, and rejuvenation. And, right. um, you know, where uh, 25 years ago when I started, it was kind of the old blood and guts routine. Like how long can you be in the gym? How much right. weight can you move? How many sprints can you run? And now we've seen that, that that's transferred over over the last 20 years, 25 years to the point where sometimes a workout might be nothing more than some foam rolling in an ice bath or yeah. you know, do some yoga type stretches and watch film because that's actually what the player needs. And it's all I about balance. It absolutely is. Yeah. And, and ultimately I think that's, what this whole load management concept is. I mean, unfortunately, as basketball purists, we have to accept the fact that the NBA is entertainment. Yes, it is basketball and it is a sport, but it is no different than, you know, going to watch a movie and watch your favorite actors. It is a money-making experience and that's, it's a business and that's what it is. And in order for the NBA to make as much money as possible, 
they want to play as many games as possible because that's more ad revenue and so forth. So, but when you're going to play 82 games plus preseason plus playoffs in a very short window of time, you know, six to seven months, that means players are playing games three, four times a week. And that's a big toll on the body. And I, I think now we're starting to see that, that, medical professionals and performance teams and athletic trainers are realizing that in order for players to play at a maximal level 82 times in a season that something else has to give so most teams have made major cutbacks on practice time and and have upped what they do from a a rest and rejuvenation standpoint but sometimes it still gets to the point where you know if you've been in the nba for 15 years and you're in your early 30s or or mid 30s and you've had some previously existing conditions and in, in, injuries excuse me that playing 82 games just isn't feasible for you to play at a high level. So they have players sit during, you know, very strategically placed games during the season. And it's a tough tug of war because that's probably what is best for the player. That's probably what is best for the team's success long-term, especially for those that are going to make the playoffs, but it does suck for the fans. You know, uh, just in this past month, I, I've taken my kids to three NBA games um, and it would have been a real shame if the stars of those games wouldn't have played on the nights that we went. Right. You know, thankfully they did with the exception of uh, uh, Brooklyn, which Katie and Kyrie were out, but that wasn't, well, that's not, management. that's not, no, yeah, that's those not were injuries, right, right. but, but we were just fortunate. It was the luck of the draw. And, you know, we went to see a Sixers game. If the Sixers would have set Joel Embiid out for load management, yeah, that would have kind of sucked as a fan. And, you know, so I get it, but ultimately the decision makers on a team, the general manager and the coach, their job is to do everything possible for the team to win games and to win a championship. And if they believe that sitting players for a proper load management protocol is what's best, then I think that's what they should do. And unfortunately, the fans will have to suffer until the NBA is willing to say, you know, and, and I'm just making this number up. I have no research. But if the NBA said we're going to cut back to 60 games a season instead of 82 then I don't think load management would be a problem because I think uh, it'd be reasonable for players to play in all 60 games because now you're talking about two or three games a week instead of three to four. Right, right. Alan, can you speak to your first interaction with Colby and what you learned that day? Yeah, I had a chance back in, in 2007. <clears throat> it's amazing how long ago that is now. Uh, oh, right. and I got to watch him do a very, very early morning workout. And I just remember being blown away that he was doing such basic stuff. I mean, he was doing pivoting drills, uh, many of which were without the ball. Uh, he was doing so much stuff just about squaring up to the basket using either pivot foot. Uh, sometimes he would front pivot. Sometimes he would reverse pivot. Um, and he was doing stuff that at the time, I firmly believe Kobe was the best player in the game. And I expected to see more sizzle in the workout. And instead, there was a lot more substance that he was focused on the fundamentals and the building blocks. And, you know, that those very basic moves didn't monopolize the entire workout, but it certainly monopolized the first 40 to 50 minutes of it. And that was really where it hammered home that lesson of the best don't get bored with the basics. You know, at that time, you're talking about an, a Hall of Famer, an all-star, a multimillionaire, a champion, an MVP. I mean, he'd already accomplished everything in the game. And yet he was still in a gym early in the morning in the off season, working on the, the most basic and fundamental movements. And I've tried to take that lesson with me and apply it to my own life and make sure that whatever it is I'm trying to, to perform well at and, and, and be good at, that I'm never leaving the basics. And like many people, occasionally I get off course and occasionally uh, I do leave the basics. And almost any time I do, 
I usually look back and go, well, that's why I'm not getting the outcomes I want. I've left the basic principles and, and I try to get back to them as, as soon as possible. And that was probably one of the most epiphanal and impactful moments I've ever had. Alan, I often say you're either getting better or you're getting worse. Do you believe that to be true? I do because of now let me preface this with I don't believe in playing the comparison game I think that's a very dangerous slope for both players and and coaches to slide on but yes if everyone around you is getting better and you're standing still then you're technically by default getting worse and uh yeah I I like that mentality it is very much a binary question like we we started the conversation with and I but I also recognize too that there are always going to be peaks and valleys we do trying to help to do it on you know just going against a cone or a chair and then eventually maybe they're good enough to go against some some pseudo defense and then eventually if they've worked hard enough maybe they could actually try that move in a game so but before they can ever you know you go from when you're taught it to actually doing it in a game i mean that could be months in between that could be thousands and thousands of repetitions so in that example you'll kind of be taking a step back and, and, and getting worse because you're doing something you just haven't grooved the pattern for, but then eventually it will overcompensate and it'll be, you know, possibly even one of your major go-to moves. Take a step back to take two steps forward. Absolutely. And, and sometimes that, that is the case, but overall to answer your question. Uh, yeah. I, I think you're either getting better at something or you're getting worse. Uh, I just don't believe in, in status quo or complacency or everything can just stay the same. Well, Alan, you are an author. Uh, you wrote a book called Raise Your Game. So what are some fundamental ways that uh, one could raise their game? Well, first and foremost is, is just being open to coaching and open to learning. I mean, it, it requires an openness. And, you know, it, it would take an openness for someone to say, hey, there might be something in this book that can help me. So I'm going to invest both my money and my time uh, into reading it or to listening to it. Um, and, and I think it starts with that openness. And then next is you have to have some self-awareness. You have to know what things you do well, but you also need to know what things uh, are challenging for you or as some would call weaknesses. Um, And and that's really important. You know, as a player, self-awareness is crucial. You know, I I always joke in the the coaching community, um, you know, if you have a player that takes a bad shot, that's not that big of a deal. If you have a player that takes a bad shot and doesn't know it was a bad shot, now you've got a major problem on your hands because they're going to keep repeating that behavior because they don't know otherwise. So, right, you know, right. if I'm coaching some kids and they take a bad shot and they look over for me and kind of pat their chest and say, my bad coach, yeah, I'll probably be a little irritated for a few seconds, but at least I know they learned their lesson on that bad shot. So self-awareness on and off the court uh, is crucial. So I think if, if you're open and you're self-aware and then the third pillar would be you have that passion and desire to consistently improve and raise your game. There's an infinite number of resources out there. I mean, one of the best things uh, about all being digitally connected on social media and on the, on the internet, I mean, there's no shortage of information. If you're looking to get better at anything, you know, I mean, 25 years ago, if you're a young basketball player and you wanted to get better, and you couldn't afford going to a camp or you couldn't hire a, a trainer, which there really weren't many back then. Right. You might, you might have felt like you were stagnant. I mean, there's YouTube channels out there that, that provide incredibly helpful and meaningful and quality information that's for free. So there's, there's no more being able to make an excuse that you don't have access to the information that other people have. Uh, because now, because of the internet, 
you do. And I think if you can take that openness and humility and self-awareness and combine it with your passion of wanting to get better and then go seek the resources that can help you get better, you're totally on, on path to raise your game. Speaking of YouTube, I feel like you were ahead of the game when it came to putting content out on YouTube. Um, I appreciate you saying that. I, I do believe in the basketball space and the training space. I was a fairly early adopter of social media. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I opened up a Twitter account in 2008, Facebook yeah. 2008. Um, I will admit I was a little late to the Instagram game because uh, I didn't think that it was going to catch on the way that it did. Uh, but eventually I, I jumped in that pool too. Uh, and same with YouTube. Um, and, and really uh, the only reason I did those things was because I was so ingrained at working with high school players. I was, <clears throat> excuse me, at Montrose at that time. And uh, I take pride that I was a pretty good listener. You know, I was always asking the, the players, you know, what, what was, what mattered to them? You know, who, who were their favorite artists at the time? You know, who were they listening to? What music did they like? Right, right. And, and, and I just heard they started talking about Twitter and Facebook and, that made me raise an eyebrow and thought, well, if this is something that's important to my players, maybe it's something I should look into. So I'm fortunate that I kind of jumped in at the right time and, and started sharing stuff. And, and one of the reasons I still love social media to this day is I learn so much from it. So I right. follow people that I believe will fill my bucket. I share stuff that I hope will fill other people's buckets. And it's a great way to engage and meet people. And, and it connects even people you know, like you and I through a, a medium like social where 40 years ago, um, you know, half the people I interact with today, I would have never even had a chance to meet in person. So I'm glad that I got in early and it's amazing that here, you know, 12 years later, um, I'm still just as ingrained in it. Alan, I remember you used to be, uh, or you probably still are a big quotes guy. What's your favorite quote of all time? Oh boy. Um, you can give me three, give me three, Alan. I'll give you a handful. Uh, one, and I love it for its simplicity is if nothing changes, nothing changes. Meaning you've, if you want to get a change, then you have to make a change. You know, if you keep doing what you've been doing, you will keep getting what you've been getting. And if you don't like what you've been getting, you need to change what you've been doing. And, and there's something about that that, that really resonates. Uh, I also like, you know, if you do the things others won't do, you'll have the things others won't have. And, you know, you could apply that directly to basketball. You know, if, if every morning you wake up and you work on your handle for 30 minutes, you'll probably have a better handle than most other players right. over time. So you'll have something they won't. But it also applies to every area of life, whether it's parenting uh, or business. Um, yeah, I would say those, those two jump out because they, they just kind of make up the core of my, my life philosophy. Alan, what's next for you, man? Um, I don't know in the long term. You okay. know, I'm, I'm so process-oriented and so driven right now. I love the corporate speaking space that I'm in. Um, I love serving audiences and working with a variety of different groups because I get to learn so much. Um, you know, I'm at the time of this recording in three days, I'm, I'm giving a keynote uh, to a company um, that, that does logistics and transportation at major events. Like I'm wow. talking at, at the Olympics and at like things like Coachella. They're the Whoa. infrastructure that, that provides like the buses and the cars and all that. And that fascinates me. Like for them to be able to uh, provide seamless logistics for an event that could have hundreds of thousands of people in a foreign country, something like the Olympics, is mind-boggling to me. And I, as I'm doing my due diligence and I'm researching them and I'm talking to members of their organization, you know, I'm learning about process and I'm learning about culture and I'm learning about accountability. So what I love about what I'm doing now is every bit as much of what I'm sharing and putting out, 
I'm also taking in and learning. And that really excites me. So um, at present, I'm so focused on what I'm doing. I don't foresee a change, but I also don't think that I'll be a professional speaker for the next 50 years. I know that there'll be at some point, I'll pivot into something else and I'll do something else. I just have no clue what that is at the moment. But here's what I do know. I will always follow my heart and my passion. I will always do what I believe is of most service and of most meaning to other people. And I'll always be uh, relentless on working on my skills and my craft. And I'm trying to develop things with high enough utility that if in three years from now, I don't want to do speaking anymore, I want to do something else that I've laid a foundation to make that leap. And I think for anyone listening, if you are working if you're working on you know, being the best teammate you can be, those things have such high utility that you will be able to apply those to any area of your life anytime you want. And, and that should be a very empowering feeling. Um, because the other thing is I have to acknowledge that as a professional speaker, like I'm not even in control of my livelihood. If all of a sudden businesses decide they want to stop hiring speakers, they want to do something else, then I'm going to be out of a job uh, I'm going to be forced out. That won't even be my choice, but I'll know that I have the skill sets that I can pivot those to something else and I'll be just fine. Alan, I really appreciate you being here. It was great talking to you. Can you let us know where we could find you on social media and everywhere else? Absolutely. No, uh, the, the feeling is very mutual. I appreciate such a good discussion and you made this really easy. You allowed me some nice soft. Oh, you, oh, oh, you definitely made it easy. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Thank you. <laughs> no, my pleasure. You know, if, if anyone listening wants to know kind of more just about my speaking and my work, uh, they can go to allensteinjr.com. Uh, if they are interested in the book, they can go to raise your game book. Dot com. And if anyone wants to chime in and join the conversation on social, I'm at Alan Stein Jr. on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Uh, please jump on, say that you listen to this. If you have any questions or you want to add any comments, uh, I love having discussions on social because uh, it's kind of a way that unites us all. Thanks, Alan. I greatly appreciate it. Talk soon. You got it, brother. Thank you for listening to Combos Court and big shouts to Alan for joining in. We appreciate you. Punch down on that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you would like to support this podcast, there's a few ways you could do so. You could leave a five-star rating and a friendly comment right on your Apple Podcast app. Rate and review wherever you listen to Combos Court. Share this episode with a friend via social media or word of mouth. Another way you could support is become a Combos Court patron. I'll put a link in the description for that. Be on the lookout for episode one, three, one, combo out.